Welcome to A.T. Stewart and Sons Ministries. I'm your host, A.T. Stewart. I'm glad you've chosen to join us today as we look into the Word of God. So take your Bibles and let's hang out in God's Word for a few moments and see what God would say to us today. 1 Timothy chapter 6, we'll be reading verses 17 through 19. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Thank you, choir. God has a great deal to say in the scriptures concerning money and possessions. Just to give you an idea of how much he has to say about it, comparatively speaking, if you look up the subject of prayer and faith in the Bible, and you will find a little over 500 verses dealing with prayer, and a little over 500 verses dealing with faith. But if you look up the idea of money and possessions, you will find over 2,000 verses in the Scriptures dealing with money and possessions. Therefore, God has a great deal to say about our finances. And there's a reason for that. The reason is because the Bible is a very practical book. Though it was written some 2,000 to 3,000 years ago, it is still just as up-to-date as today's newspaper because human nature has not changed from all time. Therefore, when God seeks to be practical and give us principles and truths in His Word that can show us how we are to live in a way that pleases and glorifies Him, He must deal with that area that touches each of our lives every day, that area of money and possessions. That's not a one of us here that is not touched every day by the area of money and possessions. Therefore, God has a great deal to say. We have been spending a few weeks looking at some of what God says concerning our finances. Today, we shall see the dangers confronting the rich. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, if you're visiting, let me encourage you to take a pew Bible on the same translation that I'll be using, or use your own Bible if you've brought one, and join us in turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We've also provided a place in the bulletin for you to take notes. I want to encourage you to do that also. Today we're going to see the dangers confronting the rich. A few weeks ago, we saw the dangers confronting those who want to be rich those who have set their goal and purpose in life as becoming financially independent and wealthy. Those dangers were spoken about in verses 9 and 10 of 1 Timothy 6. And let me simply read those as a way of reviewing. Paul says, But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires 
which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pain. So he says those who love money face many dangers. Today he tells us also those who are rich have many dangers that await them also. Probably some of you, many of you are thinking, well, I don't fall into that category. I'm not rich. So preacher, I guess I can sleep through this sermon. Well, don't be too sure. Notice Paul does not place a dollar amount on who is rich. He doesn't say in verse 17, instruct those who are millionaires in this present world. He doesn't place a dollar amount on that because it is a matter of attitude toward the amount of our money and our possessions as much as the amount itself. And regardless of our wealth, what Paul says in these verses applies to all of us because they are dangers that all of us face concerning our money and possessions. Now, wealthy people simply have a greater danger of these problems, but all of us who have anything at all are still confronted with these dangers, and therefore we must be alert and see what God has to say. First, the dangers confronting the rich. As I see it, Paul gives us three primary dangers that we all must be aware of, and especially those who have considerable financial possessions. The first danger is found in verse 17, and that is thinking material riches reflect spiritual riches. Thinking that our material wealth is a reflection of our spiritual wealth. Paul says in verse 17, instruct those who are rich in this present world. Now, by that phrase, rich in this present world, Paul is clearly drawing a contrast between this world and the spiritual world or the world to come. Paul is saying, don't think that they're parallel. Don't think because you have wealth in this world that that automatically makes you spiritually wealthy as well. In fact, a person can be a billionaire in this world and be a spiritual pauper in heaven. The prevailing idea in Paul's day, as well as in Jesus' day, was that material prosperity did reflect spiritual prosperity. That is, if a person was right with God, then they would be financially prosperous. If you were poor, it was a sign that there was some sin in your life and that you were simply in spiritual poverty as well. Remember the parable that Jesus told about Lazarus and the rich man? And one of the main points of this parable was to show that our material possessions in this life don't reflect our spiritual wealth. Jesus told about the man who was rich, who lived in great splendor and gaiety every day of his life. And then there was this poor man, so poor that he simply sat at his gate and just begged for the crumbs from the rich man's table. The dogs would come and lick his sores. He was so poor. And each of these two men died. Contrary to what those who are listening would think, Jesus said it was the 
poor man that went to Abraham's bosom, that went to paradise, and the rich man was in torment. And this surprised them because they thought that a person's material possessions was a reflection of his spiritual wealth as well. Jesus said not so. And because in our day there are those on television and radio who are making this same mistake, we need to be aware. There are those who say that if you're anything with God, then you will be prosperous financially. You're familiar with these. Name it and claim it. Whatever you want, just ask God for it, believe it, and God will give it to you. Therefore, the danger today is that a person who is financially well-off will equate that with being spiritually well-off. And they will say, I must be right with God because I am being blessed financially. Or they will think something like, I must be spiritually rich. Look how I have been financially blessed. And so the danger is to equate your financial blessings with a sense of spiritual blessings. And we cannot do that. Any more than a church can equate financial prosperity with a degree of spirituality. One of the richest groups in America today is a Mormon church. Now you might, if you fell into this trap, you would look at them and say, well, they must be right with God because look how much financially they are being blessed. You can no more assume financial blessings equates to spiritual blessings with your personal life than you can with a situation like the Mormon church. And so Paul warns those who are financially well off, don't equate that with spiritual riches as well. That's the second danger. And that is one of being conceited. Of being conceited, arrogant. Paul goes on to say in verse 17, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited. Now the word in the Greek is literally high-minded. Not to be high-minded. The rich are confronted with the temptation to think that they're better than other people because they have more money. Hence, they can become high-minded in that they have a very high opinion of themselves. It kind of goes like this. I am better than you are. Of course, they would never come out and say that. It's just something they think. I'm better than you are because I have more money than you have. Because I have a nicer home than you have. Because I drive a more expensive automobile than you drive. Because I dress better than you dress. Or because I have more education than you have, I'm better than you. Or because I worked hard and made myself rich, I am better than you are. Society tends to judge a person's worth and value by their economic status. And it always has been that way, and it always will be, because that's the way of the world. People naturally assume that Sam Walton, who is the head of Walmart, a billionaire, is a better person than that man you see working on the city sewer system when you drive to work tomorrow. You'll just assume, well... Sam Walton's a billionaire. He must be a better man than this guy who's out here working on the city sewer system. 
That is a danger that we all face, whether we consider ourselves rich or not. And so what happens is a Christian falls into this same trap of thinking that because he is financially better off than somebody else, that he is really a better person than that other person is who makes less. And so what we must remember is that God is the one who ultimately determines our wealth. Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, says, What do we have that we have not received? In other words, when you think about it, what do you really have that God did not actually give you or give you the ability so that you could earn it or give you the opportunity so you could earn it? And when we look at it, we realize we don't have anything that ultimately God has not in His grace allowed us to have or given to us. And so we're not better than somebody else because we have more than they have. And so the rich need to be careful and not become high-minded thinking, well, I'm better than that person because I have a better home, drive a better car, have more money in my bank account. And there's a third danger that faces those who are rich. And that is that they will fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Verse 17, Paul goes on to say, not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. And so the danger that confronts the rich is they will fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. A great temptation that a man of financial means has is for him to place his confidence and his trust in his possessions, in his bank account. He accumulates enough wealth until he feels that he doesn't need anybody, not even God. He thinks to himself, I've got enough money so that I can handle any problem that comes up. I don't care what it is, I can handle it. I am set for life. I am financially independent. Therefore, I am doing fine. Everything is okay. I can sit back and take it easy for the rest of my life. And he places his hope, and hope is always looking toward the future. He places his hope for the future on his bank account, on his stocks, on his retirement, on his mutual funds, rather than on God. Jesus told a story about a man like this one day. Jesus said there was this man who was a very prosperous farmer. In fact, he was so prosperous that he filled up all of his barns and he still had more crops coming in. So he's reasoned to himself, I guess I had better build more barns and bigger barns. And so he built bigger barns. He filled those up. And finally, after he'd gotten everything he thought he ever would need, he said to himself, now that I have gotten all of this, I can take it easy, I can eat, I can drink, and I can make merry, for I am set for life. And Jesus says that God looked at this man, and God didn't say, well done, O good and faithful servant. God did not say, well, man, you have really worked hard, and you have accumulated a lot. You are a great fellow. God didn't even look at him and say, well, you have been a great steward. God looked at this man and said, you fool. 
You fool. This day, your soul will be required of you. Now who will take what you have accumulated? Why? Because this man had stored up treasures on earth and he had not been rich toward God. And the danger of somebody who has financial means is that they will place their hope, not in God, but in the uncertainty of riches. And notice it says uncertainty of riches. This rich fool thought his riches could handle any problem he faced. But let me tell you, all of his accumulated wealth didn't cause him to live one minute longer. I'm always reminded of Howard Hughes when I think about that parable. The man who had millions and billions of dollars, but yet those billions could not keep him alive one minute longer when that cancer was ravaging his body. All of his wealth couldn't keep him alive one minute longer. The uncertainty of riches. Our hope needs to be in God. He is certain. He is forever the same. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Our hope needs to be in God who says He will supply all of our needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. You see, you can have a need that your bank account cannot meet. But you cannot have a need that the Lord God Himself is not able to meet. The Scripture also says that God is greater than our greatest need, that He alone is all-sufficient. As the Scripture says, they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. God says you seek Him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you'll not lack anything that's good for you to have. The Bible says the young lions do lack and suffer want. But those who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. The psalmist says that God does not withhold any good thing from those who fear Him. Don't place your hope in the uncertainty of riches, but place it in God. Now the Scripture not only warns us of these dangers, but... God gives us some safeguards to help us against these dangers. Paul talks about those in verse 18 when he says what the rich are to do. He says, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. So the first safeguard against the dangers of money is to be rich in good works. To be rich in good works. Instruct them to do good and to be rich in good works. You remember the danger of being high-minded, of being conceited? You know the best way to keep from being high-minded is to abound in good works for others. The way to keep from being arrogant is to be a servant to other people. The opposite of conceit is humility. And the way to humility is to serve others. You remember Jesus, one day he was eating supper with his disciples, and he wanted to teach them the lesson of humility. 
And so Jesus himself took a bowl of water and began to wash their feet. Now this was a very humbling thing. But Jesus, their leader, Jesus, the Lord of the universe, Jesus, the creator of the universe, knelt down and washed their dirty feet. And they were taken back by it because they had that same mentality that many have today. So that's beneath me to do that. Oh, no, you shouldn't do that. Uh, uh, you're our leader, or I'm a leader. I would never be involved in such a lowly task as that. But Jesus washed their feet and said to them, Now, if I, being your leader, have done this to you, how much more should you humble yourselves and serve each other? Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to serve and give myself a ransom for many. And so the best safeguard against being high-minded, thinking we're better than other people, is to serve other people. And not to do it in a condescending way, but to do it in a sincere way. Not to expect them to serve us, but for us to serve them. And so Jesus, who possessed all things, all the riches of heaven, himself became man and served others. He's known as the suffering servant. Do you serve others? When has it been the last time that you have done something for somebody else? A humbling service. Do you abound in good works? Are you rich in good works? The more you have financially, the more good works you should be involved in. Because the greater the danger of becoming high-minded, conceited. The second safeguard is also found in verse 18. That is to be generous and ready to share. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. One of the ways to keep from fixing your hope on your money is to give it away, to be generous. A person who is fixing his hope on money doesn't want to let go of it. I mean, that's his hope. He holds on to it ever so tightly. He doesn't want to let go of it. They do not want to spend any more than they have to because that's their hope for the future. And so they hold on to it. Well, the safeguard against this temptation of fixing your hope on your money is to be giving it away. And the harder it is to give it away, the more you ought to be giving away. Because the harder it is to give it, the more it has a hold on you. And the more you're placing your trust in it. A safeguard against this temptation is to share with others who have needs, legitimate needs. It's to give at least a tenth to God's kingdom work. If you're a person that has enough to live on, and you're not giving at least a tenth of your income to the work of God, then you better be careful. Because it seems that you're placing your trust in the wrong place. If you have enough to live on, and you're not giving a tenth, why not? No good reason. In fact, I believe even if you don't have enough, that if you give, God will multiply back to you and you will have enough. 
But surely if you're able to have the needs of your life met, there's no excuse for not at least giving that 10%. Many should be giving 12, 15, 20%. Why? So that you might guard yourself against this danger of placing your hope in material possessions. And that you might become rich, storing up treasures in heaven. Jesus didn't say it was wrong for this fool to store up some treasure. Jesus said he was rich in this world, but he was not rich toward God. That was his problem. The Bible says, as we saw last week, go to the ant. Look at the ant. The ant does store up. The ant does plan ahead. There's nothing wrong with retirement accounts. There's nothing wrong with planning for your later years in life. There's nothing wrong with that. But what's wrong is when we place our hope in this money, that we place our confidence and trust in that bank account rather than in God. What's wrong is when we hold on to that stuff like we're going to be here forever. And we don't realize that our real home is in heaven. And we need to be storing up treasures in heaven by giving to the poor and by giving to those who are in God's kingdom work and by giving to the work of the Lord through the local church. That's when it becomes wrong. It's when we don't let go of it. We just hold on to it like it's our very life. Are you being generous with what you have? How long has it been since you have given to somebody who is in need? Are you giving at least a tenth to the kingdom work of God? If not, then you need to look very closely at your life. You may be fixing your hope on the uncertainty of riches. And then Paul tells us what the result will be of being rich in good works and of being generous and ready to share. He says the results will be riches in heaven. Gifts are investments in heaven. We need to see that. When we give to God's kingdom work, when we help those that are in need, when we give to Christian workers, we are actually investing in heaven. And you are investing in a thing that will give you greater returns than any mutual fund, any stock that this world has. You see, by giving materially, we are enriched spiritually. Jesus said... Sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven. Now there are three riches, three treasures, there are more, but there are three I'm going to tell you about this morning that you will have in heaven if you will follow, follow the admonition of Scripture to be rich in good works and to be generous and ready to share. First, you will have a good conscience you will have a clear and a good conscience because you will know that you have done what is right. You will know that you have obeyed God. Your conscience will not accuse you because you have been spending your riches only on yourself. And you've been selfish. So you'll have a clear conscience, a good conscience. Secondly, you will have an enthusiastic reception in heaven by those that you've helped. You will have an enthusiastic reception by those in heaven when you get there that you have helped here on earth. 
Now, Jesus told a parable about a man who was working for a fellow, and he was in charge of the man's finances. He was kind of the accountant. And he was accused of not keeping the book straight. And he realized that his master was going to come, and his master would probably fire him. And so this man goes to those people who owe his master. And he goes to one man who may owe his master a hundred uh, uh, measures of wheat. And he'll say to him, let's settle the account for 50 measures of wheat. And so he settles the account. He goes to another fellow that may owe him a hundred measures of oil. And he says, we'll settle it for 80 measures of oil. And we'll consider the account a settled. But what this guy's doing is he's getting the favor of these people that owed his master so that when he gets put out of work he'll have these friends he can go to and they'll say well I'm willing to help you you helped me so I'll help you now this parable confuses people and Jesus is not saying that we should do those uh, practices that this steward did but what Jesus does say is that we should be shrewd we should be smart in the ways of this world. Jesus goes on to say, Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous mammon, that is, unrighteous riches, that when it fails, and it will fail, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. You hear that? They may receive you into eternal dwellings. Jesus says, Money is limited to this life. We cannot take it with us. You know that. So he said, use it in this life in a way that will benefit you in heaven. Well, how do you do that? Well, one way is by giving to those in need. Another way is by giving to God's kingdom work. But then he also says, by helping people who have needs, what you're doing is that when these who are Christians go to heaven... When you get to heaven, they're going to greet you enthusiastically and they're going to be your friend through eternity. So he says, use that money that may be unrighteous in this world, but use it in a way that will cause you to have more friends in eternity. Now, how many friends do you think you're going to have in eternity? How many people are going to be eagerly waiting to greet you when you enter through those gates into the presence of God? Well, there are going to be a line of people saying, boy, we're glad you finally got here. We want to thank you for how you helped us back there when we were living. Boy, how you are generous. We had that need. If it hadn't been for you, I don't know what we would have done. Thank you for your love, for your help. Jesus says, use that money in this life to increase the reception that we'll get when we get to glory. And then thirdly, you will be accumulating rewards in eternity. Look in verse 19. Storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Paul says, tell these rich folks to be careful, not to be conceited, not to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but rather to abound in good works, be ready to share and be generous. And in so doing, they will be storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation. And he's talking about rewards in heaven. 
Now, we are saved by the grace of God through faith. We cannot earn salvation. But our works will determine our rewards in heaven. By being generous and doing good works, the rich Christian is increasing the foundation of his rewards in heaven. And these good works give evidence that he has taken hold of what is life indeed, and that is eternal life. You see, the Bible says that a faith that does not produce good works is not a saving faith. But by our good works, by being rich in good works, by our generosity, by helping those in need, by our giving to the Lord, those good works show that we have a true faith, that our faith is a saving faith, and that we have taken hold of what is life indeed, and that is spiritual life, eternal life. And when we get to heaven, our rewards will be abundant. What about you this morning? You may not consider yourselves to be rich, but are you being rich in good works? Are you being generous to those in need? Have you had the problem of considering yourself better than somebody else because you may have more money than they have, a nicer home? Have you fallen into the danger of fixing your hope on your bank account? The first thing any of us must do. So we must come to the Lord Jesus if we've not done so and secure that eternal life that only He can give. Now you could take every penny in your bank account and you could give it away and you could not secure heaven that way. Heaven is a gift that God freely gives to those who will come to Him in faith those whom he's chosen from the foundation of the world, those who will call upon the name of the Lord, he says he will give eternal life. Not to those who are good enough, not to those who come to church every Sunday, not to those who've been baptized, not to those whose names are on a church roll, not to those who give 10%, but to those who call upon the name of the Lord in faith. And this faith comes from God. It's not a work. It's a gift. Because we cannot be good enough, never, to earn salvation. But Jesus Christ has paid the price for our sin. He's done everything necessary for us to go to heaven. And now we must come and acknowledge that we cannot ourselves earn heaven. But rather we're under the judgment of God because of our sinfulness. But realize Christ paid the price. He suffered for my sin. And call upon Him. Throw ourselves upon His mercy. Lord Jesus, save me, the sinner that I am. And the Bible says, Jesus said, I will in no way cast anyone out who comes to me. If you've not come to Christ, do so today. For until you do that, you can never be right with God. You can never have that place in heaven. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your spirit would take this truth this day, would use it to deal with each of us according to that very need that we have, and deal with us in this area that we all are confronted with every day, the area of finances, the area of our possessions and our money. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our hymn of response this morning is hymn 354. If you need to make a visible response, we encourage you.